I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saadade 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxius listeners. On this edition of the program, a conversation that I recorded last month with Rethinking Foreign Policy's Mitchell Plitnick and the Center for Security, Race, and Rights. Sahar Aziz to discuss a report they recently penned entitled Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamophobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse. We'll be discussing the issue of what's known as the Islamophobia Network in the U.S. and how it has impacted discourse around the Israel-Palestine conflict. All that and more in the conversation to follow. With that being said, let's get right to it with Sahar Aziz and Mitchell Plitnik. Welcome to Parallax View's first time guest, uh, Sahar Aziz and returning guest and friend of the show, Mitchell Plitnik of Rethinking Foreign Policy. Together, they've written a very timely uh, report for Rutgers University Law School Center for Security, Race, and Rights entitled Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamophobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse. Uh, how are you doing, Sahar and then uh, Mitchell? Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today to talk about this important topic. So let's dive right into it. This report, uh, maybe you could just give the outline of how it came about, uh, what spurred you to write it, and uh, the sort of maybe basic overview of what this report is discussing. Do you want to take that one, Mitch, or, or maybe you want to start Sahar? Let, let Sahar do, uh, take this one. Well, I've, I'm an expert on uh, racism against Muslim, Arab, and South Asians, and I've written an entire book about it called the racial Muslim when racism quashes religious freedom. And so I'm quite familiar with the various uh, tropes that are used to justify discrimination uh, against these communities. And there was one particular trope that wasn't getting much attention in terms of the research and the literature, but it was occurring increasingly more when uh, people who are uh, Muslim or Arab wanted to engage on the Palestine-Israel issue, especially when they wanted to bring the perspectives of Palestinians or cite facts that showed that Israel was in fact violating numerous uh, human rights norms and international laws and, and effectively challenge the dominant narrative 
right? The Palestinians are terrorists and they're savage and they're violent and they're anti-Semitic. Uh, and all of these are uh, racist stereotypes that effectively allow uh, the government to, to get a carte blanche, right, in terms of being pro-Israeli. And so what was happening is each time Muslims and Arabs were engaging in these issues, in these debates, they would immediately be called anti-Semitic, which was a way to defame them and smear them, but also to silence them and censor them. And so the report was really uh, a product of this troubling phenomena that was increasing uh, with time. And so we wanted to explore that and uh, research it and analyze, you know, why is it happening and also how harmful it is, uh, both I mean, to Muslim communities in particular, but also, you know, to Jewish communities, because when you weaponize anti-Semitism for political purposes, uh, you distract away from, I think, real uh, discriminatory behavior against Jews. Before we get into the meat and potatoes, uh, Sahar and, and Mitchell, you know, I think this is really an important issue, not not just addressing Islamophobia and the weaponization of anti-Semitism, but also just the issue of anti-Arab racism more broadly. Because I'll tell you, I've had, you know, I've had Palestinian guests on the show. And one of the things I, I will get emails about is uh, people say to me, oh, well, that, you know, I, I get these anonymous emails from people who dislike the show or have qualms with a guest to have on. And they'll, they'll say things like, oh, well, that guest sounded very angry or they sounded <laughs> livid. And I'm just like, I'm thinking to myself, you know, there really is this like anti-Palestinian and more broadly anti-Arab racism, you know, because, you know, to, to have people say to me, well, why does this Palestinian speak so emotionally? It's just like, we would never do that with any other group of people. And I, I think it, it's it's like the acceptable bigotry. Anti-Arab racism, anti-Palestinian racism is the acceptable bigotry, I think, in our society. Um, it, it's kind of just accepted by all sides in a lot of ways, and it's really grotesque. Yeah, I would argue it, it's accepted by liberals, which is what the really the, the, the defining difference. We have many kinds of bigotry that are accepted by various sectors. That, that's liberals, a better way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Lib liberals are ostensibly against those things, uh, and yet, and hence the title of my book <laughs> um, that I wrote with Mark Lamont Hill, except for Palestine. Um, this is a very classic thing that we see among liberals. Uh, that's why we subheaded it the, the limits of progressive politics because it. Uh, yeah, it, it, this is the one area where I think uh, you see people who are otherwise liberals, certainly who are Democrats. Um, I mean, we're seeing we we just saw. Let me just just to give a, a really stark, I think, example, uh, and we have so many to choose from with our president, uh, who has been absolutely abominable on this issue from uh, from the beginning of his administration, for sure. But but really, since October seventh, has gone absolutely uh, off the deep end. Um, he uh, put out a statement just a few days ago, marking 100 days since the October 7th attack. The entire statement dealt with the uh, the hostages being held in in Gaza, uh, the the Israeli the Israeli hostages. Now, there's certainly every reason to talk about those hostages and to 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 demand that they be freed that the taking of hostages is a war crime under any circumstances that's fine there was not a mention not a mention of what is now 24,000 confirmed dead in Gaza uh another 8 or 9,000 are missing presumed dead uh out of that 24,000 some 9 to 10,000 are children Total of about seventy percent are women and children. Um, it, it the the entire strip has been devastated. One point nine million out of two point two or two point three million people living there have been displaced. This has all happened in just one hundred days. It's almost unimaginable. And there was not a mention, not a mention of this from from Joe. But how can that be? So that can only be one way. That can only be one way. One group of people is human, and that would be the Israelis. 
And by the way, that includes, you know, for uh, I guess for argument's sake, that will include uh, non-Jewish Israelis, apparently, uh, because some of the people who were taken hostages and who were killed and injured on October 7th were not Jewish. Um, and, and then there's another group of people that are not human, literally not human, and that is Palestinians. Uh, and that is the very core. Of, of any sort of racism. Uh, how could you have slaves? How could we have had slavery? Only if you saw people of African descent as less than human. That's the only way you can do it. Um, otherwise, it, it is just unconscionable. So, yeah, I, I think that is a very, very serious thing. And again, and so this comes back to this report, why, you know, the, the other reason to write it is to ask the question. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about the attachment to Israel and the 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 love of Israel that everyone has to sort of profess in order to get into office these days. Um, but there's a flip side of that. Uh, that 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 attachment to Israel is also a complete disregard for the rights of Arabs in general and Palestinians in particular. And that needs to be brought to the fore more. That is just as strong a, a component of the warped and twisted U.S. policy on this issue as the attachment to Israel is. So uh, and it's you know both things are promoted, of course, by the same people, uh, which, you know, we can talk about that. But um, that. So that part, you know, that that racism that you're talking about, that bigotry, that de that absolute and uh, utter dehumanization, we we don't see that uh, with other people. We don't see, at least among you know Democrats, liberals, we don't see this kind of complete disregard um, for the, the 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 most basic right of of any human being, which is the right to continue living. Uh, and we don't even we, that that right is disregarded when it comes to Palestinians. I was going to say real quick, because I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what I was mentioning earlier, uh, Sahar, which is this, you know, like I said, there there are people that will put expectations on Arab and especially Palestinian voices. Well, you have to talk this way uh, or, you know, don't be too emotional when you talk about this. And I, I do think there's these expectations put on Arab Americans uh, that it's not necessarily put on. Uh, other groups, at least not by uh, liberals, uh, as as Mitchell pointed out. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So one of the things that I actually discuss both in this report that we discuss, but also in my book, The Racial Muslim, is the role of Orientalism and the pre-9-11 environment, um, <clears throat> the political environment that often portrayed people of the Middle East as uh, savages, barbarics, illiberal, despotic, misogynistic. And the Palestinian was the quintessential terrorist trope. Right? There are multiple racist tropes that uh, are targeted at uh, people from the Middle East, uh, the majority of whom are Muslim, but there is a sizable uh, Christian minority. And there are many Jews that never uh, left the Middle East, right? And were never either, you know, whether they immigrated or whether they were uh, expelled at various points in history. So, but oftentimes people think of, again, the, the Middle East and the Arab world as, as primarily Muslim. And in the 1960s and in the 1970s, which is when the Palestinian Liberation Organization was kind of the leading resistance movement um, for Palestinian uh, statehood, uh, they often engaged in violent acts and nonviolent acts of resistance. And all of Palestinians, as a result, were smeared as, as terrorists. And interestingly, right, in the contemporary era, now it's Hamas that's replaced the PLO. The PLO has become Fatah. And now they're the quote-unquote good Palestinians, although they're also the ones that Israel has completely co-opted and um, neutered and, and neutralized such that uh, there is, you know, they, they no longer even have any legitimacy among Palestinians. But this is a long-standing uh, racist trope, and you have to be able to see how the anti-Palestinian bias uh, connects to that. And effectively, when people are seen as members of the outside, or they're outsiders, they're not members of the in-group, and however that in-group is defined, then it becomes very easy and politically acceptable, if not outright profitable, to mistreat them, to deny them rights that they're supposed to have on paper, or to even pass laws that explicitly deny them rights, as we saw with the Jim Crow era. 
with African-American communities. So yes, anti-Arab racism is real and, and anti-Palestinian racism is kind of this conflation, this convergence of anti-Arab racism, also called as Orientalism and uh, Islamophobia. But I think the thing that's important is to ask ourselves, why can't we talk about Palestine in America? Why can't we talk about the 24,000 plus Palestinians that have been killed by Israel? Why can't we talk about the 12,000 children that have been killed by Israel? Why can't we talk about the 55,000 Palestinians that have been injured by Israel and the 2.3 million that are currently being starved and more than half a million of them are now facing kind of the worst level of starvation and there is imminent famine about to strike that is manufactured by genocidal policies and practices of Israel to the extent that South Africa has now you know, filed a formal complaint with the International Court of Justice. Why can't we talk about these things without being called anti-Semitic? Why can't we talk about these things without having frivolous lawsuits and frivolous Title VII complaints at universities and frivolous allegations that this is all anti-Jewish? As opposed to the response being, I disagree with you on the merits. I have a different set of facts I'd like to cite to, and now let's see whose facts are actually corroborated or whose allegations or, or claims are actually supported. But when you have one side, in this case, the Zionist side, seeking to censor and using racist tropes, Islamophobic tropes to do so, that usually means they wanna hide something. That usually means they know their argument is weak. And that also perpetuates a society that normalizes discrimination against a particular group. And once discrimination is normalized against a group, it is so easy to just take that norm and apply it to a different group. It's just a matter of time. So it doesn't do any minority group any justice or it actually harms them directly if it becomes a norm to discriminate against minorities. Because you just switch out the minority, but it's very hard to change a norm. In regards to what has been called the Islamophobia industry, maybe we could give an outline of what the Islamophobia industry is and how it operates and maybe how it networks with pro-Israel affinity groups. Do you want to uh, touch on that, Mitchell, or? Yeah, sure. Um, sorry about that. Um, so, you know, the, when we talk about the Islamophobia network and how it touches on, you know, sort of pro-Israel uh, activism, I mean, they're, they're more or less um, one in the same, although not, you know, they're not they're not totally identical. There's a great deal of overlap in the sense that many groups that I, I would argue um, uh, promote Islamophobia also uh, are, are staunchly pro-Israel. So, I mean, we can look, for example, um, at uh, uh, a group like, I don't know, the Center for Security Policy, for example. Um, they are very, very strongly pro-Israel. Uh, they absolutely target Muslims as people and and make claims about uh, Islam and the Muslim community that are hurtful and destructive and and reinforce all of the tropes that Sahara has been talking about. Um, so and this is part, of course, of the of the rhetoric that uh, that Israel itself employs. Uh, listen to Netanyahu right now when he talks about uh, about Gaza. It's the he he has uh, on a couple of occasions now described their actions in Gaza as uh, the forces of light battling the forces of darkness. So I mean, what is that? What is that taken to mean? Um, is that uh, is that Hamas? I mean, it would be strange if it's Hamas, considering very few, on a percentage basis, of uh, Israel's attacks have been directed at Hamas. Um, it would also raise the question of why they have massively escalated their raids and violence in the West Bank, where Hamas, though it has a, a presence, has no actual uh, political power whatsoever. Um, the, uh, the, the, the language that Netanyahu has also used, uh, where he referred to the biblical 
nation of Amalek. So in, in the Bible, uh, God commands because of, of the uh, sneak attacks that, that uh, Amalek committed against the children of Israel in, in, in the biblical uh, story as they were in the desert. God commands that Amalek be wiped from human history, basically. Basically, you, you, you kill the women, the children, the men, the animals, the slaves, everything. You wipe them out. Uh, uh, from history now, Amalek, to our knowledge, has not existed in a long time. But it's not uncommon when we when we talk about uh, uh, if if you're if you're really talking about uh, major hostility uh, towards another another group of people, you will label them uh, Amalek. This is rhetoric that has been used by Israelis before, although not by prime ministers. So you know these are uh, these are Islamophobic tropes that are very common. Um, that then it it's translated politically. We saw this on the. I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be um, uh, in these, you know, in these various groups. Although, you know, you you see uh, you see groups that engage in these tropes uh, being very active in Washington, and we can talk about groups like the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, for example. Um, we can look at think tanks that that promote this sort of thinking. But more specifically, you see it on the floor of Congress. We saw it when Rashida Tlaib. Um, the only Palestinian American in Congress is simply def is defending uh, the the humanity of Palestinians, and incidentally doing so while also very strongly and making very strong statements about the humanity of Israelis and Jews. She was quite clear about this, and this brought censure, which is a very very rare thing. Um, you know, she was only the sixth member of the House to ever be censured uh, in, in the entire history of the Congress. And three of those people were censured for supporting the Confederacy. So you look how, uh, you know, look how rare this tool is. And yet this was hardly even commented on. Uh, outside of the, the Palestine Solidarity Movement, few people noticed that this was absolutely racist on the on the most on the most elemental level. So it permeates all of these different places. The tropes are thoroughly reinforced and they're reinforced uh, in politics and they're reinforced every time. I mean, I, another example, uh, this weekend, there was a march in New York. Uh, um, uh, you know, calling for a ceasefire, condemning Israel's behavior, et cetera. When that march passed the Sloan Kettering Hospital, um, they made some chants towards the hospital and, and yelled and, and talked about how the, the hospital was complicit with Israel because the hospital does cooperate uh, with Israel on, on certain certain things. Many industries do. One can, I think, easily question uh, one can easily question. Uh, what you know that whether or not those folks should have done that, one can debate that. Say yes, you should. No, you shouldn't. But what I saw in in literally at least seventy five percent of the people who were objecting to that behavior was that those people were called terrorists. Terrorists. Okay, they yelled at a hospital. Okay, maybe you want to say that wasn't nice. Terrorists? Seriously? I mean, where would we would we ever do that? You know, where would we ever do that with regard to another group of people? Only when you support Palestine is that uh, is that brought out. And so this is um, this is how it permeates on on every single level. Um, and, you know, just to get back to really quickly what you what you have actually asked, you know, the Islamophobia, the Islamophobia industry um, really when we, you know, the Center for American Progress years ago put out a, uh, a report called Fear Incorporated, where they detailed many of the same groups that we talk about some, you know, we, we talk about some that didn't exist back then. Uh, where they talked about how these groups promote the idea that you know a policy debate is somehow support for terrorism, how how uh, fear and you know yes Islamophobia is promoted in these uh, in these places. So um, you know we break new ground on this because we specifically are taking on the question of how this is intertwined with the growing uh, uh, weaponization of anti-Semitism. And I think that is the, the the really really important point, which is why it has the you know uh, presumptively anti-Semitism has the name that it has, and this is really really important. It isn't a new phenomenon though. This has been going on. It's been an, and it's been an integral part of pro-Israel. I don't want to just say propaganda. It's been just, even just public relations um, for literally decades.
there are multiple questions we should be asking to related to this Islamophobia industry's existence and success. Uh, the first is uh, why they are not fringe, right? What is it that allows them to be effective? And this is why you have to connect racism against different groups is this country, uh, you know, whether we want to teach our children or not, this reality was founded on two forms of very pernicious and dangerous racisms. Uh, one is anti-Black racism that essentially created, you know, a 200 plus year <clears throat> practice of enslaving uh, Africans and settler colonialism, which nearly annihilated the native and indigenous people. And in order for us to continue uh, the system as it is, we incorporate and internalize that as kind of a fact of life. It's a shame, it happened in the past. It's, it's nothing that affects us now, but that's not true. And we see the current effects in how easy it is to racialize and stigmatize and marginalize and, and engage in all forms of uh, physical or, or psychological violence against certain groups. Because again, this is going back to the norm. So even though we pride ourselves in religious freedom, we pride ourselves in free speech, uh, we are anti-authoritarian. The entire Cold War was founded on our opposition to communism because it was an authoritarian, anti-freedom ideology. And yet, if you look at just any discussion or, or the Palestine issue, it you could take it and just place it in another country that is authoritarian in, in political structure, and there isn't that much of a difference in terms of at least the way that people respond to differences and the way that um, people with power, not whether it's state power, like in the congressional testimony or the congressional hearings that uh, ultimately led to the University of Pennsylvania's uh, white female president and Harvard University's black female president to resign. And all of it was because they were accused by white nationalists uh, that were in Congress of being anti-Semitic. But in fact, what was really happening is they didn't want any open discussion about Palestine. They didn't want, just like what Biden did in his 100-day speech uh, after the Hamas attacks, is that he didn't even recognize that 24,000 human beings had been killed, murdered. So many of whom are children and women. You know. Yeah, and, and two-thirds of them were women and children. And so this level of depravity like how do we how do we have that? How does a country have how does it practice that? Well, because it's founded on the dehumanization of people, right? And so we're just continuing that tradition, <laughs> uh, and maybe not at the same level of severity, maybe not the same scope, but it's the same uh, conceptual uh, framework. And so when we talk about the Islamophobia industry, we can't ignore the fact that it is also heavily Zionist and anti-Palestinian. And this goes back to the pre 9-11 Palestinian trope that then is expanded by this Zionist uh, kind of ecosystem of organizations that again, they're self-proclaimed Zionists. It's not a conspiracy, they're proud of it. And they then expand all of their tactics and their attacks and their, and their racist narratives to all Muslims. And they fundraise around it and they get asked to testify on the Hill because of it. They get media attention because of it, as opposed to being shunned or silenced or marginalized or ignored. Uh, so that is really what I think is the worrisome uh, result. And that's the, that's the consequence that we need to be concerned about as a society that at least seeks to, to retain its democratic identity. Um, and then finally, why has it become mainstreamed? Why are people so afraid of talking about Palestine, right? And I think we need to stand up to the bullies. 
a lot of these Zionists, they're just bullies. And a lot of these Islamophobes are bullies. And we cannot allow bullies to set the rules to our society. And we need to, all of us collectively, uh, whether or not you, you know, the, what we work on is combating racism or combating Islamophobia or combating you know, anti-Semitism, but as a, as a society, we cannot accept that it is um, the, the normal way of doing things, of having conversation, is by bullying each other or by through ad hominem attacks or smear campaigns or defamation campaigns. And so I think it's important that kind of the average citizen take back the, the rules of public engagement and public discourse, because this is just one example of how we can't even do that um, without having to pay a, a very high cost. Do you want to add to that at all, Mitchell? And uh do you have any thoughts on uh, the issue of how this affects uh, public discourse and discussion and also just U.S. policy? Yeah, um, actually, I, I did want to speak to this a bit and, uh, you know, and actually step back away and not so much as an author of this report and speak for a minute as a Jew, as an American Jew. And what does this mean? What is what is happening here? Well, Let's take a look at what just happened at Harvard, uh, where the very first ever um, African-American woman president of Harvard was ousted after just a few months in the in the role. And why was she ousted? She was ousted because of the uh, basically a trap in language that was set for her by a white nationalist uh, at a congressional hearing. So, you know, and 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 we can look at that whole process and how ugly that was and how racist it was and how, uh, you know, but but for part of it for me is also, here is not just the weaponization of anti-Semitism. This is the weaponization of anti-Semitism to fight as a, as a counter to anti-racism. And that is a very, very dangerous place for Jews. That is a, a very, very scary place. And we saw, and we've actually seen at Harvard, there have now been reports since uh, Claudine Gay was, was ousted in Harvard, um, the internal Harvard uh, server, where there had been certainly some very, you know, some very passionate, sometimes some very uncivilized uh, uh, back and forth on the question of Israel and Palestine before. Now, all of a sudden, the reports that are coming out of there are really some of the most vile anti-Semitism that have nothing to do with Israel and Palestine. Now it's real anti-Semitism. Well, why did that happen? Because the the weaponization of anti-Semitism, uh, and I don't think this is an accident, uh, uh, confirms anti-Semitic, real anti-Semitic tropes. It actually provides fodder to white nationalists because, oh, look at the power of the Jews. Well, you can you can be racist, you can be sexist, you can be homophobic, but if you say something about the Jews, it's kind of what you know Dave Chappelle was saying uh, a year ago that he got in so much trouble for. Uh, well, here's the actualization of it, and it's interesting that a black man like Dave Chappelle, who I think is kind of a putz, but you know, um, he 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 said this. He got a lot of flack for it. A white member of Congress, where it's much more important, a, a white woman who's a member of Congress basically comes out there and reinforces anti-Semitic tropes uh, in a congressional hearing. And the the Anti-Defamation League treats her as an ally. Uh, now, the Anti-Defamation League is, is its own problem, um, and they have been at the forefront of twisting the fight against anti-Semitism into the defense of Israeli crimes. And this is, again, very, very dangerous to, to all Jews, to me specifically as an American Jew, but to all Jews everywhere. This is an extremely dangerous thing. So um, that, I think, is, is a part of this that not enough people, certainly not enough Jewish Americans are paying attention to. Uh, it's very self-defeating and it's very scary. And why does this happen? As I said, it's not an accident because when you want to see power, what, what's been the most powerful thing in, in, as, as we have been arming Israel and defending it and making sure that nobody can not just stop it, even deter it slightly from its, its murderous actions in Gaza. That is what our government has been doing uh, from day one. And really, the 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 only thing that has even 
a, put a slight break on it that has even drawn some attention to it has been the demonstrations in the streets. Well, who's been leading that? That has been a coalition of Jewish and 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 Muslim and anti-racist and anti uh, uh, and and feminist and you know all of these progressive. Uh, groups that envision a, a better future, because in the last analysis, right now, Jews may be in a pretty decent position still in the United States, even with rising anti-Semitism. Uh, that doesn't our history tells us that doesn't last forever. How do we stop it? How what defends us? Is it counting on the government? Is it counting on <laughs> white nationalists sitting in Congress? Is that what is going to to help us in the long term? No. What helps us are the the fights for social justice. When we align with anti-racist groups, with anti-Islamophobia, you know, uh, groups, with 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 just Muslim groups in general, with with uh, uh, anti-war groups, with any sort of social justice group, that is how we fight anti-Semitism. That is how we keep American Jews safe, by keeping our, our brothers and sisters in, in all walks of life safe. That is the and it's the only way you can look back at history. It's the only thing that's ever worked. And it's the only thing that ever is going to work. And this is, again, I think one of the reasons, because an insecure Jewish community uh, is vital to the to the continued support and survival of Israel. Because it is only through that fear and maintaining that fear. And how do you maintain that? Again, so now we come back again to Islamophobia and to anti-Palestinian racism. Because how do you how do you maintain that fear? Well, you maintain that fear uh, and that support for Israel, uh, no matter how rejectionist it is on any sort of uh, terms for for moving forward and granting Palestinians their inalienable rights, how do you how do you maintain it? You maintain that by showing the world that oh no these are these these people are the Palestinians don't even care about their own freedom they don't even care about their own children all they want to do their entire purpose in life is to kill Jews, and and that they are that that somehow these are inhuman people. This is I how mean you it's do it's that. basically treating I mean it's it's. It, it's a portrayal of Palestinians as being little more than animals. I mean, it's it's. I I would say that you can even you can even cut out the little more that this is this is utter complete dehumanization. And it, again, right now we're seeing it in a very raw form. We're seeing it in a very pure form, uh, as as a an unprecedented slaughter is is going on. Um, but this has been going on from the beginning of this conflict. You know, you can go back and you can look at the attitude of European Zionist, early European Zionist immigrants to Palestine, and even there, even at that time, they saw Palestinians as backward. The, the the liberals among them saw them as people who needed you know this as a sort of a white man's burden sort of image you know we need to teach them how to take care of themselves we need to teach them how to be modern people uh, we need to teach them this and that because look at how they're living and look at how uh, you know completely ignoring by the way the, the the society that had flourished there for centuries upon centuries and and in many ways had done quite remarkable things uh the Palestinian society has always been among the the um the most advanced on on many levels intellectually spiritually um uh physically uh, in the entire Arab world and we can get back to the issues that they saw there as being part of empire and colonialism and etc but um but but yes that so that idea of of again white superiority white supremacy permeated Zionism from the beginning as it did all European nationalism of that era. So so one of the things I want to also add to, to Mitchell's comments is um, while everybody is focused and, uh, and worried and empathetic to Jewish students and Jewish faculty and Jewish communities since October 7th, uh, especially in the United States, nobody is paying attention to Palestinian students. Palestinian I was just going to say not... Not to interrupt you, but I think we we just had three Palestinian students get shot. I mean, that's that's how bad it is. But go on. Right, and and yet there's no uh, congressional testimony to talk uh, a hearing to talk about anti-Palestinian racism and Islamophobia and anti-Arab uh, racism on campuses or in society. And just to list a few things that Palestinian and Arab and Muslim students have had to experience, in addition to their allies, but particularly those students. Doxing, they've been fired from their jobs, they've been blacklisted for employment, they've been subjected to harassment and intimidation on a regular basis. 
They've been subjected to retaliatory and frivolous complaints and investigations in universities where you literally have Jewish students who are saying, well, she looked at me wrong or she said free Palestine or he he said that he supports Palestinian human rights or criticized the Israeli government. That made me feel unsafe. And therefore now you need to investigate this uh, uh, Palestinian student as if they don't have the right to say, it's not even just about speech, it's also about the distraction and the stress and the harassment that comes from having to deal with this complaint. So oftentimes the complaints are found to be unfounded and ungrounded, but you have, but you're dragged through this process. Um, and meanwhile, the Palestinian Arab Muslim students are afraid to file complaints because they believe that the universities have no sympathy for them and that they've incorporated kind of this dehumanization and this uh, second class, third class citizenship treatment of Palestinian Arabs and Muslims. So that we need to also recenter the conversation about Palestinian to Palestinians, to the 24,000 30 to 30,000 Palestinians that have been murdered by Israel and, and the families that are here that have families in Gaza that have been murdered and to um, friends and, and the way in which that is making those communities feel because their own president doesn't even recognize the humanity uh, of Palestinians. And, and let there be more, no mistake, those of us who are Arab American and Muslim American, we see ourselves in Palestinians and we we know that that dehumanization extends to us, that if it were our families or our children or our parents or our aunts and uncles, right, that this society would not value our lives. Um, and we know that this society is capable of humanizing groups because they do it to white people. And I think this is something else that we need to acknowledge is that part of this privileging of the Jewish experience especially as compared to the Palestinian experience and the Muslim experience, is white privilege, right? You know, notwithstanding the history of anti-Semitism, and yes, the Holocaust happened in Europe, you know, 80 years ago, and yes, anti-Semitism um, was at a much higher rate in the U.S. in the early 20th century. In fact, I dedicate two chapters of my book to you know, anti-Semitism and, and the history of it. But in 2023, you know, the vast majority of Jewish Americans experience white privilege. And I interpret much of this complete dehumanization of Palestinian Arab Muslims and the privileging of Jewish Americans in this context today as a manifestation of, of that white privilege. And so that's why I'm particularly, you know, uh, appreciative and, and, and cognizant that there are many Jewish Americans who recognize that. And people like Mitchell and others who say, no, I, I am not going to allow this to happen in my name. And, and just like when we dealt with the anti-Black uh, racism of the Black Lives Matter movement, it was just as important for white people to recognize that they have white privilege and that saying all lives matter is offensive because cops are not going around shooting white men in the back and white people in the back and, 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 and arbitrarily and extrajudicially the way that they are they are and have been of, of black bodies and black men and women. So we, if the reality is that there's inequity, then we have to acknowledge that inequity and we need to do, be affirmative in equalizing and recognizing that not everybody is getting the same level of, of protection and respect and acknowledgement of their own humanity. I just want to add to that because we, we've talked about what uh, Arab, Palestinian, and Muslim students face. But I mean, this also extends to even just professors and academics. Uh, you know, I, I had on uh, about a year ago before all of this uh, recent events unfolded in, in Gaza since um, October, you know, I had Dr. Laura Shihai on the show. And I mean, she was just taken through the ringer by these accusations of anti-Semitism. And she beat those accusations and the investigation. Uh, but I feel like she was targeted because of her uh, background as Palestinian. And I mean, this is uh, a weapon that is wielded against Palestinian voices in academia and the professional world. No, absolutely. And I think that the, what we're, what we're seeing and many people who are not Arab Muslim 
are realizing just how hostile the environment is for us because they are, when they get accused and when they get attacked, it's vicious. Now, I will point out that when you have a society that's already been primed to accept and internalize stereotypes about a particular minority group, it's a lot easier to make the smear campaign stick. So whereas if they're attacking, for, for example, when uh, Claudine Gay, who, you know, the African-American woman, the first to be the president of Harvard, when she was attacked and called anti-Semitic, um, I think most Americans know that is not true. And they know that she was attacked for other reasons, such as one, being a black woman, who there were many white nationalists and anti-black racists who were eager to find any pretext to get her out and had been attacking her long before October 7th and claiming, you know, in pejoratively and in insultingly that she was a quote-unquote affirmative action hire. So we knew that anti-black racism was at play. We also knew that it was that she was not willing to um, kowtow to these rich donors who think that, that they can buy uh, universities and that they can put themselves in, in the shoes of a, effectively be CEO simply by big donations and their demands that they shut down, right, all speech. But I don't think anybody really believes that she is in fact an anti-Semite. If she were Arab or Muslim, I think people would actually believe it, regardless of that person's track record. Right. Regardless if that Arab or Muslim or Palestinian professor or administrator had a demonstrated track record of being religiously pluralistic, inclusive, welcoming of, of different community groups. But that Islamophobic trope, which goes to the heart of our report, presumptively anti-Semitic colon Islamophobic tropes in the Palestine Israel discourse, that trope sticks. Right. And I think that and, and what's important for people you know, listening is that we find that to be racist, right? When you call a Muslim an anti-Semite and you don't have evidence, objective evidence that they are in fact anti-Semitic and the only thing you can point to is that they're defending the human rights of Palestinians or that they're criticizing a nation state's policies and practices and military, which in this case would be Israel, then you are actually a racist seeking to deny that Muslim's freedom of speech and freedom of political engagement Right and freedom to to civically engage in a conversation that is highly relevant to uh, Americans because we give that particular state Israel four billion dollars a year of our taxpayer money so of course we should care about what they're doing right uh, in addition to other countries to whom we give we give aid so I think it's just important that we shut that down and say look anti-Semitism is is something that we should combat but we have to accurately define it. I will not call somebody, nor will I accept somebody being called an Islamophobe because they criticize Saudi Arabia and its policies and practices, or they criticize Iran and its policies and practices, or Egypt, or Yemen, or any other, or Afghanistan, or any Muslim-majority country. And if they, in fact, have facts to show that they are violating human rights, then let's hear it. But I'm not going to shut them down and call them Islamophobes, because if I did, people would know exactly what I was doing, is I was trying to censor and silence and hide the information and obscure the information that that, that other person was trying to bring to the debate and to the discourse. I, 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 don't, I just want to jump in really quickly and add one, one little thing really quickly, which is that... <clears throat> You know, part of this that one one of the things that we're talking about here is that there is this notion of a specifically Muslim anti-Semitism, that there is a kind of anti-Semitism that is peculiar to Muslims and to Arabs. Now, the the anyone who says that there's no such thing as an anti-Semitic Muslim is come on, <laughs> of course there's an anti there's a, there's an anti-Semitic anything it's an anti-Semitic Jews, um, there's uh, many of whom are are currently located in the West Bank by the way, but um, uh, there are 
there are people who hold prejudices of all kinds everywhere. And to be sure, you know, especially uh, we see much more in Europe than we do here in the United States, that uh, a Muslim community that is radicalized against uh, the Jewish community there. That is that is there are real problems of that kind. But if you look at the at, at the anti-Semitism, there is no such thing as a Muslim anti-Semitism. The tropes are the same. When you find real anti-Semitism, wherever you find it, among Muslims, among Hindus, among Christians, amongst whoever, it's the same tropes. It's all the same, uh, the same, uh, the same tropes that we've always seen about Jews and money, Jews and power, and Jews and control. When you are, that is one of the key places where this, first of all, this branding of a specifically Muslim anti-Semitism fails, but also this collapsing of anti-Zionism when anti-Semitism fails. Uh, there is, there is no. The, the, what what we see when we talk about anti-Semitism and we're actually serious about it and we're looking at it, it, it is not hard to distinguish when somebody is being anti-Zionist and somebody is being anti-Semitic. It is actually pretty easy. And it's not hard to tell when somebody is using, which is a, a phenomenon that's been growing lately, uh, using anti-Zionism to disguise their anti-Semitism. This has actually been growing. This has been, it's been a marginal problem for a while. It's been growing lately, which is not surprising. Um, but but it's 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 really easy to look at it and see what are they saying? Are they actually criticizing Israel or are they bringing in all sorts of ridiculous anti-Semitic tropes that we've heard thousands of times? Can you see uh, a, a white nationalist saying these same words? If the answer is yes, then you're done. You know, most white 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 nationalists actually support Israel. So, you know, um, that is that is something that I think that needs to also be discussed in, when we're looking at this. There's, we need to attack not only which, which has been happening, we've been fighting this collapsing of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, but we need also to be fighting this notion that there is something specific, you know, which is exactly what Sahara has been devoting so much of her work to, th that there is something specific about Islam that is anti-Semitic, that there is a specific kind of anti-Semitism that comes from the Islamic world. It isn't true. It's the opposite. The Islamic world has been has been infiltrated, if you will, or at least, you know, Western, uh, um, sorry, European anti-Semitism has been imported into the, the 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 Arab and Muslim world. That's why there's no uh, protocols of the elders of Zion uh, that came from an Arab source. How, I, that being said, go to uh, bookstores. You know, this is one of the things people, and they're right. You can go and buy the protocols about the, uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion in bookstores in Egypt. You know, not very, not very difficult. It's been translated into Arabic. It's being sold. People buy it. But that is a European anti-Semitism that's been brought into the Arab world. Again, not to say that there haven't been, you know, historically that there haven't been at times problems that Jews have encountered in Muslim countries as well. Nothing compared to what we dealt with in Europe, literally nothing. Um, and so this when we talk about anti-Semitism, I think that is a really, really important distinction to, 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 to make and a really important battle to fight. Real quick, I, I want to ask you uh, something, Mitchell, in regards to all of this. And then, Sahara, I want to give you maybe... Um... Some some parting words and and just policy recommendations that you may have for dealing with these issues, uh, but Mitchell, so we we've talked about Claudine Gay throughout this conversation, and you know, a certain Manhattan Institute think tanker was pretty influential in pushing for her ouster, and as Sahar noted, uh, you know, these figures like that Manhattan Institute think tanker, uh. Essentially, we're going after her before any of this. Uh, this was very politically motivated, and it was about going after a black woman. And not only that, but it turns out now I'm reading in The Guardian that one of the so-called scientists cited in the push to ouster uh, Harvard's Claudine Gay had links to eugenicists. That one of the data science, the so-called data scientists, had links to eugenicists, and I, I just. It's so topsy-turvy because these figures are really using this issue to push the most heinous politics. And I, I think it's it's a politics that isn't friendly towards Jewish people. I mean, we've seen what the history of eugenics led to. So I, it's bizarre to me. I wanted your comment on that, though. So just really quickly, I mean, this is again, this is kind of what we've we've touched. Uh, I've touched on uh, a few times in this conversation. Um, the 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 idea here, this is not 
being done by accident. Um, one of the things Republicans are frustrated about, and we saw this especially with Donald Trump uh, in his reelection bid uh, back in 2020, um, is that Jews remain in the United States, Jews remain Democrats. We are still, the, the Jewish community is still overwhelmingly Democratic. It's overwhelmingly liberal, even if it has a blind spot when it comes to Israel. Um, the, the, the goal here is literally to pull Jews away from the Democratic Party. Um, and and to pull particularly the organized Jewish community away from the Democratic Party. This is not uh, this is not uh, just happenstance. So the idea is to pull this all into this this uh, this sort of right wing uh, uh, Republican uh, notion of um, you know sort of an individualism, and this is you know and promoting the the right wing capitalism, the the general you know right-wing ethos that we've seen. It's all part and parcel of that. And it's, you know, even though we still see Jews so powerfully among the Democratic Party, I mean, this part of it is very inconsistent. And at some point, something will have to give. I, I'm still very hopeful that what's going to give is that, it, is that more and more Jews, as we are seeing happening, um, uh, uh, and I, I'm seeing it firsthand as I'm on the, the board of directors of Jewish Voice of Peace, and, and we're, you know, more, so many, especially young, but not only young Jews are coming to us now and saying, okay, you know, I, I, I get it now. I see what you were saying. Um, and I think that's that's the side that, but one way or another, this is an inconsistency that cannot hold forever. We cannot have this Palestine exception to liberalism. And it is starting to to collapse under its own weight. And the right recognize that. And that's why they're trying to pull uh, more and more ostensibly liberal Jews onto their side uh, by exactly by bringing it into and juxtaposing it against affirmative action and generally, you know, liberal anti-racist programs that is, they're, they're saying when you support that, you support anti-Semitism. That is the message they're trying to send out. And I think it's a it's a very obviously it's a flawed message. It's a stupid message um, that that I think most people and I believe most Jews will see through. But we'll see how that happens. But I think that's the phenomenon that you're identifying here. And I wanted to give uh, Sahar the parting words here. Uh, what do you hope listeners get out of this conversation? And what uh, maybe you could discuss the policy recommendations that are in the paper that you and Mitchell wrote? Yeah. Well, the the most important kind of takeaway is that if you find that a particular uh, party to a disagreement or to a dispute responds by censoring or silencing the other side, you should be weary that they are trying to hide something from you. And you should then conduct your own research and you should seek what is that information that they are trying to hide from you. Unfortunately, we are at an era where we have access to uh, the internet and social media and other uh, sources of information. And so this is when listening to the perspectives of Palestinians is essential there are multiple podcasts, there are multiple YouTube channels, there are books and, and faculty uh, that intentionally provide, you know, those voices, center those voices. And so I would highly recommend that, you know, we all conduct our own self-education on Palestine because the mainstream media has failed us, uh, universities have failed us, public education, you know, K-12 has failed us. And so we are, and this is part of what we do at the center, is to provide you know, these alternative forms of analysis and, and information so that people do have access to that, to that analysis. And, and the other kind of most important recommendation we make in the report is that Congress and the president and the government, and by extension, universities uh, and other area uh, you know, entities, that they are proactive about ensuring that they have Muslim, Arab, and South Asian experts or people who bring that expertise uh, to the conversations. Uh, you know, it's the, the one way to be to have a ruinous foreign policy, which we saw after 9-11, is to have experts who only understand one side. You know, we didn't have people in the FBI who knew Arabic or Dari. We didn't have people in in the executive branch who understood Iraq 
in Afghanistan and who had the deep expertise. Instead, we had political hacks and ideologues and zealots. And as a result, we spent tens of billions of dollars. We, can, we killed over 100 million people in the Middle East, most of whom were Muslim. And we generated terrorist groups, right? We helped terrorist groups recruit and militant groups re recruit. And overall, you know, when we pulled out of Afghanistan, it was very clear that it was just as much a failure as it was the Vietnam War, right? So our foreign policy is um, highly, highly flawed and weak. And I think, frankly, a threat to our own interests because we are, our racism is clouding our, uh, our policy judgments and our policy decisions. And so we need to make sure that we have people at the table when those heated debates happen, and they should happen, about really complex foreign policy issues that have high stakes in terms of lives and, and money, that we have people at the table who do provide that Palestinian perspective, right? Through Because of their research or because of their language abilities or because of their lived experiences or because of you know their, their professional experiences. Because right now we don't have that. And as a result, we have a president, Biden, who can't even say the word Palestine or Palestinians a hundred days after Israel has been slaughtering and pummeling Gaza and has killed already 30,000 human beings. And when you have a president that is that, I think, depraved, uh, clearly he does not have competent advisors and competent uh, experts on his team. If he can't even do that small thing, of just recognizing the facts on the ground. Um, so I do hope that our report entitled Presumptively Anti-Semitic, Poland, Islamophobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse will contribute toward your audience's um, self-education. And I encourage everyone to also follow the Center for Security, Race and Rights. We are um, frequently engaged in public education. We have a fabulous lecture series called Humanizing the Other. If you go to csrr.rutgers.edu and you press lectures, you you can register. And we have our social media, Rutgers CSRR and RUCSRR. Um, and so I, I do hope that um, this is just the beginning for your audience to learn more about these important uh, issues that affect all of us. Well, I want to thank both of you, uh, Sahar and Mitchell. Uh, are there any links or are you guys on social media at all? Anything we should mention there in that regard? So, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at MJ Plitnik. I put out uh, a lot of stuff trying to keep people updated on what's going on, particularly right now in Gaza, but in general. Um, also, I have a Substack you, you can find just by uh, going to Substack and, and searching my name, Mitchell Plitnik. It's called Cutting Through. And um, you can always follow everything I'm doing at rethinkingforeignpolicy.org. And I can be followed at Sahar Aziz Law on both Twitter and Instagram. And also my website is saharazizlaw.com. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sahar Aziz and Mitchell Plitnik. As always, if you appreciate the work I do, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Before the end of the month, I'll have a three-hour edition of the Parallax Vlog, our monthly bonus show up. Well, close to three hours. It's about two hours and 40 minutes with C. Derek Varn. Uh, my apologies for the lack of content on the main feed this month, but I've been dealing with a number of issues involving family and uh, just, you know, recharging my batteries, so to speak, with regards to the podcast. I needed some time away. Uh, a lot of the topics I cover are very you know, upsetting, depressing, etc. So I did need to take some time away. I'm getting back into the swing of things. And it is you, the listener, along with my one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson, that make this show possible. So please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax Jerilax View with Jerilax View.
The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.